welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. It's true, and I am Crink Pitto, writer, funny person, friend to the universe. You sure are. You just made me laugh. <laughs> you did. You're so funny. Um, hi, everyone. I'm uh, Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist, a folklorist, and friend to the universe. Mm-hmm. I... I love the universe so much. The universe gave me a great gift today. It did. It did. I have been, uh, just some personal news, I have been trying to find an apartment in New York for uh, several weeks, which is a long time in New York Mm because things move fast here. And the universe just granted me an apartment. Yay! Moving can be so stressful, so I'm glad that that piece is firm. Thank you. Thank you. What what has the universe given you lately, Corinne? Oh, that's such a good question. I just visited a bunch of friends in L.A., and it was so invigorating. It was the Ooh. best. That's such Love a dramatic that. word to use. But I really felt so excited, and I'm just grateful. I'm glad. And it's still green. It's still yes. all green over there from the rain. It really so it's, was. It's which nice. Is shocking. I mean, it's funny how different the greenery is in general from the East Coast. Like, I'm only looking at succulents and that, but it looks so lush. It was crazy. And I know that's not the standard, yeah. but it was really beautiful. It's it's definitely lying to you, trying, yeah. trying to draw it's you over me. to the west They're side. They're like, come to the... <laughs> and then <laughs> I forget that it's, like, deeply polluted. Like, there was a hazy morning, oh, yeah. and I was like, oh, look at the fog rolling in. And then it was like, no, no, that's that's bad. <laughs> the the other OG word, it's it's smog. Not yep. fog. <laughs> mm, but we aren't dealing with any smog here. It is a, a beautiful day as Gorgeous. we're recording. And we are currently on a horse-drawn carriage ride through Central Park. Um, it is a, a beautiful early spring day. The birds are chirping. The flowers are out. And I am looking forward to smelling this horse poop. Oh, yeah, you're looking. Oh, I forget that you love that smell. <laughs> I do love that smell. I love the smell of gasoline, so I totally can relate to a smell that people, mm. other people find horrible. Um, this smell isn't for me, but <laughs> that's why we're a great pair. <laughs> that's why. Um, but we, I mean, it'll poop, and we'll walk away from uh-huh. it. So yeah. it'll, it's it'll be. I don't fine. have to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But as we are sitting in this horse-drawn carriage today, thank you, sir, for uh, listening to us chat up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we're in this horse-drawn carriage, we are going to be talking uh, about another scientist. This is another bio episode. And today's subject is Dr., eventually, eventually Dr. Claudia Alexander, who uh, was a black geophysicist and planetary scientist. I love the name Claudia. It's a cute name. It really is. Um... But I would be thrilled to walk us through some of her early life. Yes, please. I want to know uh, where she came from. I want to know why she got into what she did. Yeah. Okay, so I don't have as much, like, niche info about her as we have from some of our other um, bio episodes. But I think I found some fun stuff. So Claudia Alexander was born in Canada on May 30th, 1959. Birthday's coming up. Um, But she grew up in as she described, a sleepy little community of orchards and oak trees in Santa Clara, California. Oh, I also grew up with oak trees. Mm -hmm. That's so nice. I did think of you. I was like, oh, like a quieter upbringing and then getting into science. Um, Mm -hmm. She was in the center of Silicon Valley, so I don't know how quiet it was, but I know California can be pretty spread out. 
at least from my week in LA, this is one of the things that I learned. <laughs> I'm you're all knowledgeable an now, now, so I believe you. Exactly. <laughs> um, she grew up during the computer revolution that was happening there then. Um, her mom was a corporate oh, librarian at Intel. Sick. Uh-huh. Isn't that fun? I am really curious what a corporate librarian kind of does if they just like keep their records of the company, I guess. That's a good question. Yeah, keeping records of the company or like when I think of a librarian, I think of someone who just has all the answers or at least knows how to find it. How so, to find like, it, yeah. Um, imagine if there's like a little a little help desk in the in the middle yes. of Intel and every time they have a question they go to they her. They go to her. I am curious if it's a job that like lasted through the computer revolution because it seems mm. like it's something that we've maybe outsourced to just like Google Drive or something. But very cool. Um, so later in life, Claudia did an interview with NASA and she was asked to describe the first time she made a personal connection with outer space, which is always such a fun thing to hear. And she said, um, it wasn't exactly a connection with outer space, but at the age of five or six, the film Fantasia opened an imaginative (gasps) pathway of wonder for me about worlds other than Earth, primitive worlds, and how huge geologic forces can impact life forms there. Oh, that's so cute. Isn't that can so cute? We, can we review Fantasia? I've never seen it. <gasps> I haven't seen it either. I've heard it's like let's very trippy. Okay. Let's it's like, that's such a funny thing for us to review, but I'm into it. Look, if it's good enough for Claudia Alexander, yeah, it is good enough for us. If it's going to spark our interest in planets <laughs> as well. Okay. So Claudia went on to study journalism at UC Berkeley. Um, or wanted to study journalism, but her parents weren't okay with it. She told NASA, um, or NASA asked in that same interview, how did you end up working in a space program? And she said, my parents blackmailed me. They really wanted me to go to the (laughs) University of California at Berkeley, but they would only agree to pay for it if I majored in something, quote, useful, like engineering. I hated engineering, but during an engineering internship at NASA Ames Research Center, I found myself sneaking over to the space building all the time. When my boss realized that I enjoyed spending my time there, he placed me with a scientist, Dr. Ray T. Reynolds, in the space science division. That's how it happened. Wow, that's such a cute story. I really like that. I think that must have been scary to like be studying something you don't like. Yes. And like yeah. going as far as like you kind of have an internship in engineering and it's like what the heck am I doing here? Yeah, that's gotta be that's gotta be rough. And there's so much pressure on you at that stage of your life to figure out exactly yes. what you want to do for the rest of it. That when you feel like you've been forced into something that isn't enjoyable, um, it can feel pretty hopeless. Yes. I'm really happy that she um, had someone in that internship who took her over to yeah. to the side that she enjoyed more. Yeah, I feel like lucky that that path got crossed too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I totally relate to having parents who want you to be scientists. When I uh, when I started taking folklore classes, my mom was not <laughs> thrilled. Like, huh, what about that one? Mm, mm, <laughs> that's, that's not what I trained you to do. Yeah, yeah. I went to college to be an elementary school teacher. And then while I was in college, got really into improv comedy which is so embarrassing and then (laughs) it kind of opened the world like I didn't realize TV writing was a job and then I Mm -hmm. did and was like well obviously that's what I want to (laughs) do but I didn't discover that until like halfway through college Um, Mm -hmm. yeah it's just fun to like find the thing that you really like Mm. Um, and she did good for her okay so I want to mention her personal life quickly because 
she reminds me of you, Moya, because she had this like second interest, and hers was really in writing and fiction writing, or like kind of a crossover of like educational writing. Um, she wrote children's books, including some of the Windows to Adventure series. One of them, including Which of the Mountains is Greatest of All, and Windows to the Morning Star. And it, mm. I was trying to figure out like what these books are, and it's kind of like a um, Magic School Bus type series. So I'll read you the premise, which is while exploring the old orchard after school, which feels like obviously maybe roots from home, Angie and Mm -hmm. Rashad discover a magical creature, an old broken down window calling itself Abogado. A window? A window. (laughs) Windows to adventure. Um, okay. When Abogado volunteers to take them places, Rashad readily agrees while Angie is not so sure, wanting a little more information about the safe uses of the creature's abilities. <laughs> I'm with you, Angie. <laughs> She's like, how are we going to use this safely? Wait, wait, wait. Rashad, um, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> no. The creature's magic can only be accessed by asking questions. Angie asks about the current word assignment they have for homework. The word is greatness. Abogado mm. takes them to visit Earth's mightiest mountains, and they explore from there, which I thought right. was so fun. And she also wrote science fiction. Oh, yeah. Do we ever figure out which mountain is greatest of all? I'm sure the book tells you, but okay. you don't get that preview. You can't. Oh, damn. That, they're teasing it. That question's going to bother <laughs> me for the rest of the day. I love that the word assignment is greatness and not, like, <laughs> mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it took a leap. Oh, you want to hear about greatness? I want to tell you about mountains. Exactly. Like we can interpret greatness in any way. But anyway, um, she was also a member of the Romance Writers of America. She used her writing skills to contribute to like other passions. Like she played tennis. She wrote for like a tennis blog as well. And she traveled and horseback rode, rided. Um, yeah, she just seems like she was really cool. Yeah, like she had a life outside of science. Yes. And that's that's important and kind of rare. Yeah, I think days. that's rare for so many people who like really dedicate themselves to work. And I'm sure in academia it's like way worse, but yeah, it's just nice to remember that like I feel like she could go to a dinner party and like not say what I do. It's like there's a whole world of like, oh, I just finished writing this and I yeah. played tennis and I did whatever, which I love. I love that for her. Good for her. Yeah, we are uh, in this in this carriage in her honor because she liked to ride horses. I know, Corinne, you do not like to ride horses, no. but uh, I wanted to be horse adjacent for I love this that. episode. I think that's mm-hmm. nice. thank you for considering me. <laughs> I can of get course. pulled by a horse, but I won't <laughs> ride a top one. Right. Um, behind, not above. I understand your preferred <laughs> prepositions. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so she went to UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she graduated with a master's in geophysics and space physics uh, from UCLA, just staying in the California area, in 1985. Not 1895, like my notes say. I see in the notes, notes here. <laughs> it's like 1895? <laughs> I thought she died young. She actually died so old. <laughs> so old. No. She finished in 1985. 
After getting her master's degree, she worked for a little bit at the uh, United States Geological Survey studying plate tectonics. Uh, that was a short stint. And then she moved to NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, or JPL, and she worked as an instrument representative for the Galileo mission, which we talked about in our, mm -hmm. our last episode on Jupiter. Um, she was an instrument representative for the Near Infrared Mapping Spectrometer on board Galileo. Uh, so as an instrument representative, it's her job to talk to different parts of the team, kind of as an advocate for this instrument, making it the best science tool that mm -hmm. it could possibly be. Uh, she worked there for a few years, and then in 1988, she enrolled in a PhD program at University of Michigan, where she studied space plasma physics. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing that space plasma physics is uh, very connected to the sun um, and its plasma and its solar wind and the stream of charged particles that the sun sends out into the rest of the solar system. Yeah. So that's what she was studying. Uh, her advisor was Tomas Gombasi, who is a Amazing. space plasma physicist. So she didn't just do space plasma physics. She studied a whole bunch of stuff in grad school. She modeled comet formation. Um, so we've talked about the core accretion model for planet formation before, but we have a lot more to learn about how comets form and how they evolve over their lifetimes. So she studied that. Um, she also wrote a paper about the solar wind. So comets, solar wind. She was doing some work with Venus and Jupiter um, and she finished grad school. She got her PhD in 1993. So five years. Five years um, is kind of a long time, especially since she already had a master's degree. Um, but mm -hmm. I think that's because she was like she was doing all this work. So yeah. it took her a while. While she was in grad school, she got involved with outreach programs, and she was especially interested in working with kids of color and students from the inner city of Detroit, which is nearby. Uh, and for that work, she was named the University of Michigan's Woman of the Year in Human Relations in 1992, so the year before she got her PhD. It's good for her. Okay, that reminds me again of the show I Think You Should Leave to drop it in two episodes. Because <laughs> there's a sketch about the baby of the year. Who will be the baby of the year. Oh, oh no, I want to know who the baby of the year is. Wait till you meet these I babies. You and I, Corinne, I'm saying it now, you and I were babies of the year when oh, we were born. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I yeah. say that it's an insult to my twin brother who was also a baby at the same time. <laughs> Parentheses but you were derogatory. Better. Yeah. You're exactly. better derogatory. <laughs> this is why I only make podcasts with people who were born in different years from me so that I yeah. can say that and it's true. <laughs> exactly. We would never overlap as baby of the year. <laughs> never. Um, but she was really instrumental in getting some, especially young uh, black women, uh, black and brown women, to finish high school and to pursue careers in science. So yeah. she did she did great work. That's very cool. After her PhD, she went back to working at JPL at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and she did so much stuff. So at first she started working with the plasma wave instrument again on the Galileo spacecraft. And that mission taught us a lot about the entire Jovian system. The Jovian system is Jupiter and it's more than 90 moons. So it's a big system to study. There's a lot of information that you could potentially gather. Mm -hmm. um, the Galileo spacecraft discovered more than 21 moons of Jupiter. 
So, uh, you know, we know of about 90-something now. 21 of them were discovered by Galileo, the spacecraft, not the man. The man only discovered four. Uh, The spacecraft also observed a very thin atmosphere on Ganymede, which we talked about in our last episode. Ganymede is the most magnetic moon. It's the only moon in our solar system with its own magnetic field. And Claudia had done a lot of work on Ganymede. She had modeled it before she worked on the Galileo mission. And based on her models and other scientists' hypothesis around her, everyone kind of assumed that Ganymede was like a chunk of rock, that it was Mm -hmm. inactive, that it didn't have stuff going on inside. They definitely didn't expect it to have an atmosphere. They expected it to be frozen. But the Galileo spacecraft observed this thin atmosphere and Claudia was so surprised that when she saw the data coming down from the spacecraft, she was surrounded by other scientists and engineers, and she said out loud, I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But of course, she's a good scientist, so she um, did not ignore the data. She used the data to shift her understanding of this moon that she had already studied to make it an even richer understanding. So she worked on that instrument with the Galileo spacecraft, but she eventually got promoted to project manager for the entire mission. Um, She was actually uh, Galileo's last project manager. Uh, So the Galileo mission, it was launched in 1989, but it ended in 2003 by careening itself into the atmosphere of Jupiter, and Claudia Alexander got to be the person who sent it flying into Jupiter's atmosphere (laughs) um, because she was the project manager. So that's that's very cool. That That happened in 2003. I was wondering that when we talked about it, of like, how did that, was that like on a timer where it just took the jump? <laughs> but it's nice to know that someone was like, now it's time. As if, uh, we Thank you for your service, Galileo, but it is time to retire yeah. and <laughs> die. <laughs> yeah, then, <laughs> um, that was the first big mission that she worked on, but she had an illustrious career. So starting in 1998, well, like she overlapped a lot. Um, She's still working on Galileo, but in 1998, she also started to serve as the U.S.-based project scientist for the Rosetta mission. Uh, The Rosetta mission was a European space agency mission designed to be the first spacecraft to land on a comet so that we could learn more about comet Mm -hmm. formation, more about their orbits, more about, like, we've seen tails on comets. They have these big, um, like streams of of molecules that come off of them as they're orbiting around the sun mm-hmm. and so we landed on a comet and got to study that in person like yeah. up close which is really cool that was what we did at the space center with the kids on the comet mission they Aww. had to they had to land a probe on to uh, or an rov onto a comet and then take a sample home but if they were if they were doing their work correctly, they would discover the comet's headed straight for Earth. Uh-oh. What are we <laughs> oh, going to no. do now? <laughs> Wait, what What did you have them do then? Well, then they would brainstorm ways to fix it, or we would facilitate the brainstorm. They always wanted to blow it up, which we would say no, <laughs> because um, uh-huh. it might make more pieces and be worse. Yeah, um, we're not in moonfall here. Yeah, this isn't moonfall. Um, basically, they would come up, we would kind of steer them towards the idea of they had already been building this ROV. Let's keep building it and just land it on the comet and hope that it can push the comet slightly off course. All right. And then they would that. they would do it, and we would play the video of them saving the Earth. Yay. There is a video of them not saving the Earth that we never played. 
But you were prepared, just but in case. But we were prepared if, if a class really fucks up. <laughs> no. What was that video like? Was it all people like that video? dying and screaming? No, no, no. It wasn't that dramatic because I did watch it a few times because I simply could not believe that they made the second option. Because I'm like, even, yeah. if you're, even if this is like enrichment first, we can just fake it and say, you did it. Have a great day. <laughs> yeah. They don't need to know. No, that one, the ROV would land on the comet and, like, explode itself. Like, it, it, the ROV would fail. It's not that the, you saw the video of the comet hitting okay. Earth. But never played it in my time there. Good. I hope they yeah. never do. There was one class where we thought about doing it because they were being really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but we were like, I can't ruin this experience what does that even for them. Mean? That we had a, some classes where like the older kids got the more they wanted to like to defy like any kind of authority which uh, you know mm-hmm. developmentally I get but I'm trying to I'm like don't you see if you just follow the rules at the space center you'll have so much fun <laughs> like, that was always you're like this is my job Bentley. like stop talking back to me I'm just doing my job I, again I think you should leave there's a sketch where he's like I'm not trying to make you have the worst day of your life at your job <laughs> but those kids were those kids really were hi it's Corinne welcome to this episode's mid-break we're still on our horse-drawn carriage, and Moya is feeding the horse a long carrot at the moment, so now's a good time to give a shout-out to our patrons who support this podcast every single month. Thank you, as always, to our sun-like stars, Sharn Llewellyn, Finn, and Peyton, and thank you to our newest pre-main sequence star, Lyle. You can support us, hear your name on the podcast, make it to our patron star chart, all by supporting us on Patreon for just about a dollar an episode. The star chart, the Patreon info, and more is at our website, palebluepod.com, or you can go straight to the source, patreon.com slash palebluepod. And if you can't support us financially, that is totally fine. We love you. You are still space. Another great way to support us is to share the show with your friends and leave us a rating and review on whatever app you're listening on. And since you listen to Pale Blue Pod, I have to ask, Are you looking for a fun, no-pressure way to learn math and science? Check out Brilliant.org. It's the best way to learn math and science interactively online. Brilliant has thousands of lessons in math, science, and data analysis, and they're adding new ones every month. You can enjoy fun storytelling, there's guided problem solving, and you can make a lot of mistakes while playing, and it's still a good time. On Brilliant, your natural curiosity will drive you and not the threat of a test. Brilliant doesn't just teach you facts and formulas. They actually develop your intuition for these subjects through interactive gameplay. Their science courses can help you get a deeper understanding of things we talk about a lot here, like electricity and magnetism and special relativity. Or you can branch out to their classes on geometry foundational logic. Whatever you learn on Brilliant, you'll have a fun time doing it. And that's what learning is all about. Go to brilliant.org slash palebluepod to get a 30-day free trial, and the first 200 people will get 20% off their annual subscription. And finally, I want to recommend another fantastic podcast in the Multitude family. Spirits is a history and comedy podcast focused on everything folklore, mythology, and the occult 
told through the lens of feminism, queerness, and modern adulthood. Every week, mythology buff Julia and her childhood best friend Amanda get together to learn about a different story from mythology and folklore over drinks. There's everything from mythological origins of major franchises like Lord of the Rings and Wonder Woman to modern urban legends to a roundup of werewolf stories from around the world, and there are episodes that Moya and I guest on. You can start listening with any of the 300-plus episodes they've released over the last six years. Dive in at spiritspodcast.com or search for spirits wherever you download your podcasts. Okay, I think the horse is done with its carrot, and we're going to get back to our episode. The specific comet that the Rosetta mission landed on is called 67P slash churyomov Gerasimenko. I think it's, it's like a Sounds named right. after two Russian scientists, mm-hmm. I assume. Um, so she was a project scientist for the Rosetta mission. And a project scientist works with engineers and administrators to advocate for the best science instruments possible in the face of budget and technology restrictions. Sure. Like she's, she's the defense lawyer for, this, for the instruments, pretty yeah. much. Um, and the Rosetta mission taught us a lot about comet formation and solar system evolution. So I'm, I'm really glad that it worked and that she was a part of that. But that's not all she did. While she was working on the Rosetta mission and while she was still working, I think, on the Galileo mission, she was asked to serve as the magnetospheric discipline scientist for the Cassini spacecraft, uh, which was a mission that we sent to study Saturn. So she did a lot. She was working behind the scenes to make sure that these missions got off the ground and that they worked the way they needed to once they were actually orbiting their, their planets. Um, And I I read this interview with Lene Quick, who is now a doctor, um, but at the time she was a grad student at Johns Hopkins University. Um, And in the interview, Lene asked uh, Claudia what it was like to work on missions for NASA instead of getting a professor job where she would teach and do research. And uh, her response was, quote, I did not do a postdoc, but I went into the workforce and regretted it immediately. I regretted it for about 10 years. While the money was good, uh, and in parentheses, I was so insulted by the salaries offered a postdoc, I missed out on some critical development. So first of all, yes, I will second that um, salaries in academia are terrible. Um, you, You spend six on average years getting a PhD in something and becoming the world's leading expert in your specific field. And then most um, PhD students will go on to do a postdoc or like a postdoctoral appointment um, at some other university or research institution. And after being the world expert in, in some niche field, you get paid like maybe $70,000 a year if you're lucky. Which yeah. I know is a, is, a, is a lot of money. And I know that there are people who would, who would love to make that. I would love to make that. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. But considering the amount of time and effort that you've put into schooling right. to get to that point, it's not, it's right. not enough. And also a lot of these like experts are in extremely expensive cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, wherever. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, I am extremely left wing when it comes to <laughs> minimum salary <laughs> requirements, but I'm like, that feels like the baseline living for yeah. any person. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it, pre- it pretty much is. The other terrible thing about postdocs is that you, um, you usually are 
are moving from your home institution, like where you did grad school, to somewhere else entirely. And most postdocs last one or two, maybe three years. And then you're so, looking for another... Yeah. yeah, and then you're looking for another job and you're That's probably going to have to move again. And this is a, a huge problem. And also, moving is thousands of dollars. And th- and most of them don't give support. Like, immediately subtract that from your salary. Yeah, it's, it's awful. And people do two or three postdocs before they get a full-time position as a researcher or, yeah. or a faculty somewhere. And so the, the, the system is terrible. Also, there is so much money in the world. Nobody needs to be struggling. There is Mm -hmm. more than enough. Mm -hmm. Eat the rich, eat the sun. That's that's what we say. Absolutely. (laughs) I did see someone on the Multitude Discord say that we should have like politics style pins that are like the moon is for the people. And I'm like, I actually am obsessed with that idea. If we were to sell very, oh my like, god, yes. Cutie merch. <laughs> yes. I imagine merch in our future like like a like a baseball cap that says eat the sun. Like yes. wouldn't that be so cute? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a little bib. We can sell bibs that a say eat the bib. sun. A baby bib. The moon is for this baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Okay. I think I'm I'm done with my rant about how shitty the postdoc situation is. <laughs> but it, I I really um, that quote of hers from that interview resonated a lot with me because it's it's true. Yeah. Um, she did have to miss out on some critical development when she chose to forego a postdoc in favor of doing uh, work in the industry and going to work for NASA. And that actually has an effect on her reputation. Um, so okay. in... In academia, the currency that most people pay attention to is how many papers you publish. Okay. Um, So publish or perish culture is very real in that if you don't publish a lot of papers about your research, people won't know about you or your work and it will be harder for you to get jobs in the future. Yeah, that seems bad. Yeah. When she says that she missed out on critical development, she is talking about the fact that she didn't get a lot of experience doing science writing because she went right from grad school into working on these missions. She didn't write a lot of research papers. And so since that's the academic currency, her contributions to the field aren't as visible. And that's why it was harder for both of us, I think, to find a lot of information about her. And that's part of the reason this episode is going to be shorter than a lot of our other Mm -hmm. episodes. Yeah, so that's, that's the unfortunate thing, that she was pun intended, instrumental in getting us to understand a lot about Jupiter and Saturn and other parts of the solar system. And yet we don't get to hear about a lot of her work just because she didn't publish papers, which like only 10 people would read anyway. But um, that is how scientists elevate their their platform and their reputation. Yeah, that doesn't seem like the best move to me. (laughs) No, it's really not. Um, But she did win a few awards, and there are a few awards given out in her honor. Um, I said before that she won the Woman of the Year uh, at University of Michigan in 1992. Uh, Ten years later, she won the University of Michigan's Atmospheric, Oceanic, and Space Sciences Alumni Merit Award. Ooh. That's good. Yeah, she's like, it's like the award was made for her. (laughs) Yeah. Truly. Um, in 2003, Alexander was awarded the Emerald Honor for Women of Color in Research and Engineering by a corporation called Career 
Communications Group Incorporated. Um, they, they put out a magazine and they have a conference and they decided to honor her in 2003. Oh. Um, in 2007, the Claudia Alexander Scholarship was established at her alma mater, so at University of Michigan, by her cousin. It is a needs-based scholarship for students who study specifically climate or space sciences in the University of Michigan's um, engineering school. And um, the American Astronomical Society offers the Claudia J. Alexander Prize to recognize mid-career scientists who have made and continue to make outstanding research contributions advancing our knowledge of planetary systems, including our own solar system. Uh, So AAS gives that award out every year. I love that. I haven't heard the term AAS Really? I haven't said that before. Uh, maybe you um, have, and I and I didn't clock it, but double A. Yeah, I um I think I usually try to say it out. Um, mm-hmm. American Astronomical Society, but astronomers, we just we say double AS. Um, that's so funny. I love it. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't. I just think it's funny to like say something that is almost the same length as the original. That's <laughs> <laughs> the original thing. <laughs> Honestly, let's let's count the syllables. Double AS has four. AAS is just three. If we just called it AAS, A-A-S it would take yeah. less time. I, it's, it is easier for the mouth to say double AS. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we can all agree that it's faster than saying the American Astronomical, Astronomical Society. Society. Yeah, exactly. Um, as we've said in previous episodes, we are only covering scientists who are not alive um, mm-hmm. so that we can tell their whole stories, which means, unfortunately, that Dr. Claudia Alexander passed away. Um, she passed away in 2015 after a 10-year-long battle with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. She um, definitely died before her time. She was working at NASA on these missions pretty much up until the time she died. And um, if she hadn't, I'm sure she would still be making amazing contributions to the field. Mm -hmm. But um, rest in peace, rest in power, Dr. Alexander, one of the first 30 black people to get um, a PhD in an astronomy or physics field Whoa. in the US. So she she deserves all of the recognition, all of the flowers that she can possibly get. Yeah, the numbers, the numbers ridiculous. The numbers are low. I was number 24. I was the Whoa. 24th black woman to get a PhD in an astronomy or physics in the US. Really? And not even like at Columbia or at No. Har- no. Like, Whoa. No. That's so small. It's very small. Um, and so she she's a pioneer. She is um, an icon. She is someone to look up to. And I'm, I'm really glad that we got to cover her work on the pod. Me too. I have to read her book. With her books? Windows to Adventure. The books? <laughs> um, and her short story. I would definitely, I'll, I'll include, if I can find it, I'll include a link to her, her short story in this week's research notes for sure. Love it. But to wrap up the episode, I wanted to do a a fun little um, activity with you, Corinne. Um, I want to talk about Dr. Alexander's papers, but I also want to make fun of the fact that not just her papers, but most academic papers have real stupid titles. Yeah. And so um, I will read out eight different paper titles. And Corinne, your job is to tell me if it's an actual paper title by (laughs) Claudia Alexander, or is this just a random combination of words that I made up? Oh my God, I'm nervous. (laughs) I had so much fun with these. Okay, the first is shock distribution in the fluvial fields of Europa's crust. 
Okay, fluvial is such an odd word to me. <laughs> so I'm going to say that one's not real. Okay. You are correct. Yay! That one's not real. But fluvial is a real word. Fluvial is a real word. Okay. People study fluvial fields. All of these words are real, but together they are complete and total nonsense. Okay. Shock distribution. What? Of, <laughs> yeah. Of, of fluvial fields. Fluvial means like the, f- the flow of something down a path. Okay. So like, like, like as when a we river. Fluid. Yeah. 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 Um, of Europa's crust. Europa's crust is made of ice. It doesn't have fluvial fields. Things aren't flowing. So. Yeah, I was thinking of this one felt strange to me because I'm like shock distribution to me implies like an earthquake or some kind of mm. like core quake. Mm-hmm. Also, fluvial sounds crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's an actual word, but I, I really like where your mind's at. You have good <laughs> intuition for this. Let's, let's see if I can keep it up. <laughs> OK, the next one. Shuffling foot points and magnetohydrodynamic discontinuities in the solar wind. I can read that again if you. Yeah, I'm gonna need that one again. Okay, I'll do it slower this time. (laughs) Shuffling foot points and magnetohydrodynamic discontinuities in the solar wind. Okay, I'm gonna say that's real. Why? Because it sounds so weird. Cool. Um, yes, it okay. is real. It sounds to me. It was like there's no art to the sentence. So like, <laughs> I think that would mean it's real. Oh my god. <laughs> it, you know what? That might be a good way to go through this. There's no art in the sentence. You're like Moya's so artsy. She would make it sound. Good. <laughs> she would make it sound better. Something that I could s- say to a friend. Like this is a group of words that you can't remember. Yeah, like, <laughs> not at all. There's no flow flow to it. There's no fluvial flow. Yeah, exactly. This is a real paper. It came out in the Journal of Geophysical Research in 1991. So I think it was like at the tail end of her PhD work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read the abstract. And in it, they found that there are relatively more tangential discontinuities as opposed to rotational discontinuities in solar wind that originates in close field regions Mm -hmm. than there are in solar winds that originate in open field regions. Okay. Do I know what that means? No, not really. I think, I think what it's saying is that there are more of these discontinuities in the solar wind closer to the sun than further out in the solar system. Yeah, okay. But I don't know exactly what those types of continuities are or what the difference between them might be. But it it is a real paper. Okay. Good job. Option C. (laughs) Tangential discontinuities in the solar wind, colon, correlated field and velocity changes in the Kelvin-Helmholtz instability. Hmm. Okay, well... I, you just told me that there are tangential discontinuities. Yes, but did I just recycle? Did I just repurpose yeah, that term? Yeah, but now term? I'm thinking you're like, you did this on purpose. I'm going to say it's not real because we're name dropping an instability here. <laughs> it is real. Oh. It is real. Yeah, she, she did a lot of stuff with tangential discontinuities in the solar wind. This good one to have was a niche. Yeah, it's good <laughs> for people to know what you're about. Yeah. Um, this was also published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, but earlier in 1986. And this one had to do, basically what they found was that the change in direction for both velocity and magnetic fields in the solar wind are aligned with each other, and it is because of the Kelvin-Helmholtz instability. 
Oh, okay. Yes. So this paper was like, these two things that we think should be related to each other, they are related to each other. Good. Good. You need Good. to you need to explicitly say it sometimes. Honest, <laughs> or prove honestly, it. yes. I mean, there. it is good to publish null or obvious results in science because otherwise different people will spend time and energy trying to answer that same question. Mm-hmm. So um, even if it feels like a very small result, you should publish it. Yeah. I love that. <clears throat> All right. Option D. Making cosmic ray waves, colon. Beetle-Hoffman instabilities in the Roche lobe of the co-moving heliosphere. Not real. <laughs> That's not real. I made <laughs> words up. <laughs> the Beetle-Hoffman instability I was is like, not a thing. That name is actually too easy to say. <laughs> oh, you're right. I should should have made it harder. I knew when I was coming up with this, I was like, I know I want it to end in Hoffman for some reason. But like Beetle just came to mind and I was like, I want to study the Beetle Hoffman instability. It sounds like it sounds like they're a great team. Yes. Um, <laughs> also, just like in the Roche lobe of the co-moving heliosphere, the Roche lobe or the Roche limit is um, how far away are you from a massive object before you're no longer dominated by its gravity? And a co-moving heliosphere, the heliosphere is like, is technically the full extent of our solar system. It is how far the sun's gravitational influence extends. But a co-moving heliosphere doesn't make any sense. What's it co-moving with? This is so funny to me, Maria. They are nonsense words, like, to me, because they are words I don't know, and to you, because you know the meanings, and, like, they don't make sense in context. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I had so much fun with this. Okay. Um, You were right. That is not a real paper. The next one is Interplanetary Magnetic Field Control of the Venus Magnetosheath Field and Bow Shock Location. Let me read Um, it again. Yeah, read it again. Okay. Interplanetary magnetic field control of the Venus magnetosheath field and bow shock location. I think real. Yeah, that's real. Why, why do you think it's real? <laughs> um, again, because it has the cadence of the other one that was real. <laughs> okay. Fair. Fair. But um, I'm really going off gut here, so, and I'm not always right. Look, your gut has not led you wrong so far. Uh, It is indeed a real paper, and it was uh, published in Advances in Space Research in 1986. They studied ions in Venus's atmosphere to, to see how its magnetic field is distributed, because ions are charged particles, and so they should follow the shape of the magnetic field. And what they found is that Venus's magnetic field is asymmetric, and that has to do with the way Venus's magnetic field um, interacts with the, the solar wind. Okay. Mm-hmm. But cool. I love the word magnetosheath field. That is yeah. one word. That's that one word in the paper title. That is a big word. Why would they do that? I feel it like they like easily could have... sounds like a superhero word. Yeah. It does. Like, they could have split that up. They did. Uh-huh. Magnetohydrodynamics, I understand. I. It's long, but I. it's all connected. Magnetosheath field. What is the sheath? What are you talking... <laughs> Why? You're, you're five for five. Um, number six. This is called shear force. That's S-H-E-A-R. So it's a, mm-hmm. like... Sheer force, not... It's going to sound the same way no matter 
but it's it's S H E A R, not S H E E R. Shear force in adjacently counter rotating molecular hydroplumes. Not real. No, that's not real. <laughs> you did it. You did it. Shear. Okay, so shear force is the force between two. Um, moving fluids or two objects that are moving past each other but going in opposite directions. That's shear force in adjacently counter-rotating molecular hydroplumes. So what I was trying to get you to think this was uh, was a a paper about the the bands across Jupiter um, because they and like I was like, these adjacent bands moving in opposite directions are made of molecules, and then hydroplumes was just like a nonsense word. I um, get it. Also, Jupiter doesn't have hydroplumes. It doesn't have <laughs> plumes at all, and if it did, they wouldn't be hydro because there's not enough water in Jupiter's atmosphere. <laughs> Duh. Duh. <laughs> Sheer for- Hydroplumes. <laughs> I crack myself up, and that is what matters. That is important. Um, okay, number seven. Language of science as a bridge to Native American educators and students. Real. This is a deviation. But yes, yeah. it is real. It Did is real. Did Claudia write this? Yes. That's um, awesome. So this is this isn't a paper per se, but it's uh, like a report um, that was part of the outreach work she was doing with the Rosetta mission. The Rosetta mission, named after the Rosetta Stone, was meant to serve as like a a translator between our current knowledge and knowledge of the early solar system. And so they made a lot of, uh, a lot of their outreach had to do with the the language part of it, where they were trying to make connections between different cultures. Um, And so in 2010, Claudia Alexander wrote this report on a project that she was getting involved with. And it's part of the Rosetta mission. And I quoted from the report, one of our lessons learned is that finding people who are bilingual, who have an understanding of Western science and traditional knowledge are key to making the cross-cultural connections work, which is very true. Because what they were doing with this program was they took a bunch of quote unquote NASA words. So things like um, cell phone or rocket launch or uh, like comet. And they had indigenous people come in and kind of translate those NASA words into uh, words in indigenous languages and um, into like concepts from indigenous storytelling. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And so that one of their findings is kind of obvious but it's we need someone who knows both nasa stuff and indigenous stuff in order to do this translation yeah yeah (laughs) which is like duh but but yay i'm glad you figured that out (laughs) that was from 2010 and um our last one contact tension in the absence of non-newtonian symmetrical pressure not real Damn it, Corinne, that's not real. (laughs) Really? Oh, my God, that was a true guess. That was just, well, we got to flip the coin. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping I'd throw you off because you'll see in the notes, I wrote a fifth thing. Um, So for the listeners, we have notes for this episode, and I wrote out the titles of all the papers. And then below that, I put notes on their abstract. And four of these titles were actual papers. Four of them I made up. But I wrote five notes and the last one says, "Oh, 
That's giving me so much credit, Moya, because I'm like not doing the math to even know which question we're on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I really wanted to trick you. The so the note for um, the last made-up paper is. Uh, apparently in this abstract, they learned that forces are applied to the surface until the crust cracks. And I was like, Corinne might see that and think it's a real paper. But no, I couldn't trick you. It is, it is in fact made up. I appreciate that. That's really funny. <laughs> um, wow. Eight for eight. You, did, you didn't get a single one wrong. I got the Kelvin Helmholtz right. Oh, wow. Good you for did, me. You did because you were like, oh, that's a real instability that we've talked about before. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, I guess I need to get better at coming up with fake paper titles. Maybe I'm channeling, like, some kind of energy, <laughs> some academic history. <laughs> the spirit of Dr. Alexander is moving through you as we speak. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for playing that little game. Uh, that next so time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you. I will, eventually. Yeah, you'll get me. I know you will. And this is actually a great time to stop because we've been on this horse carriage for a while, and I'm sure... This is a lot of cash we're going to have to pay in a minute. Oh, you're right. Well, that's okay. Pale Blue Pod is paying for it. <laughs> the loads of money. Oh, yeah. There's enough to go around. I've said it. There really is. None of us have to suffer. Well, wherever you are in your personal horse carriage ride, I hope you remember that you are space. Yeah, you are. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.